everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. And I'm struggling with cold, so you have to grab my sexy voice. <laughs> and uh, thanks for Mary. She brought homemade banana bread. So enjoy. Okay, today we will cover a lot of scripture, so please hang tight. Today's scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, this is very crucial text in the Old Testament. Many theologians think this chapter is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament because it outlines God's promise to David. These promises are often referred to as the Davidic covenant. The New Testament <coughs> writers believe that the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which means that uh, the messianic expectation was developed in this chapter. So this chapter is divided into two. Uh, verses 1 to 17 is an account of a covenant, a promise that God made, made to David and his house. And verses 18 to the end of chapter is David's response. So the first part is what God does, which is pure God's grace. And the second part is what David does in response to what God does, which is David's gratitude. So let's see verses 1 to 3. After the king was settled in the palace, and the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan, the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remained in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So there are three things that have happened up until this chapter. Last week we saw the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David has now been united. And second, the Jerusalem has been captured. The city which we now be called the city of David. And third, the Ark of Covenant has finally returned and is now dwelling in Jerusalem in a tent. So up until this point in time, David has lived his entire life fighting battle, fighting battle one after another. So this was David's first real period of rest in ages. In chapter 5, Hiram, the king of Tyre, um, had built a beautiful kingly house for David and his family. He said David lived in a house of cedar. Cedar wood was Especially valued. So that means is that that means that David lived in an expensive and fancy house, while the sacred of Ark still dwelt in a mere tent. So I think David began to feel a little bit guilty, or he was grateful to have a beautiful home after all those homeless years in the wilderness. So he wants to build a house for God. It's not unusual for kings to build elaborate temples for their gods, so nothing wrong <coughs> with David's desire to honor God. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Should we not have a house that match or surpass the king's palace? How can such a great gesture possibly be wrong? So David consulted the prophet of God about his idea, and he said, <clears throat> he said, go ahead. So I wonder if um, David were not here now, what kind of God's house he would like to build. We also many amazing cathedrals in Europe, but church buildings in these days are a little bit different than medieval European ones. So just for fun, I found some interesting modern church buildings around the world. Are they amazing? David's temple building idea. First, 
there was no need to do so, since the ark has resided in tent since the since the Exodus. And throughout Israel's history, from Mount Sinai all the way to the reign of David, when the people move from one place to another, so God has been content to travel with his people. God will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. So he is not ashamed to say he has been traveling around in a tent with them. The little irony here is that uh, although tent was carried by Israelite on their journey, all along they have in fact been carried by God. The second, God has not commanded his people to build him a permanent temple. God instructed the Israelites to build a tabernacle and did not even ask for a temple. So if a temple were needed, surely God would have asked for it. <coughs> the idea of building temple should come from God, not from David. Third, David was not an appropriate person to build a temple. The question in verse 5, are you the one to build me a house of dwelling? May imply that David would not be a right, right person to build house of God. Here, uh, David wasn't told exactly why he wasn't allowed to build the temple, but he did find out at some time later the reason why. First Chronicle 22, 7a says, David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house to my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. And First Chronicle 28, 2, 3 King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my fellow Israelites. My people, I had it in my heart to build a house as a place for rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I, had, I made plan to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build the house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. First, no safety for the ark uh, could yet be sure since Jerusalem was not completely fortified against her enemies. In Kings 5, 3-4, Solomon said, You know that because of wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. So just because your heart is in the right place, just because your plan is a noble one, just because your friends applaud it, it doesn't mean it's God's will. You know, sometimes God saying no to us isn't because it is, this thing is bad. It is just not for us. Eugene Peterson put it this way. 
But there are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen after a night of prayer to be a huge human distraction from what God is doing for us. And that is what Nathan realized that night. God showed Nathan that David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. So even though God didn't want David to build the temple, God didn't prevent David from getting everything ready for Solomon. So David would eventually play a huge role in the temple. He began to work intensely to collect all the material that will be necessary for the building of a temple for God. So in a sense, he would provide his son Solomon with a ready-to-assemble Akiah-like temple kit. So, verse 8 to 9. Now then, my servant, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all my enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest man on earth. Here God reminds David what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do for and in David. It was God who took David from being a simple shepherd to ruler over Israel. It is God who has given David all of his victories. And it will be God who will make David a celebrity. Everybody will know who David is. So in verse 5 and 8, God described David as my servant David, which implies the relationship between God and David. The Almighty, Lord Almighty versus my servant. The word servant is very significant term. It's used only for people like Moses and Joshua. The term often has the connotation of special representative of God. It would suggest the honorable submission of someone who has unusual representation of God in his life and ministry. So here it's like God said to David, you didn't choose me. I chose you. So this is the call and purpose for you. And then David's call and purpose is introduced in verses 10 to 16, which is known as the Davidic covenant. Before we dive into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about covenant. What is a covenant? A Bible is divided into Old and New Testament, the word testament derived from the Latin translation of covenant. So at its basic letter, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. But um, the biblical definition of covenant is that of an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and humans that instruct the conditions of their relationship. It is given by God 
to impose on humans. Human has no part in any negotiation over it. Yet, it contains specifications about their conduct, and it may also include penalties for disobedience. In the Bible, we see two kinds of covenants. First one is unilateral covenant, which is unconditional, one-party covenant. It is like a will. You know, you, what you are going to receive is not based upon your actions. Second type is bilateral covenant, which is two-party covenant. It is like, if you do this, I will do that. It is conditional. There are five main covenants in the Old Testament. They are the Noahic and Abrahamic, Mosaic and Davidic, and the New Covenant. First, Noahic Covenant is in Genesis chapter 9. The timing of when God made this covenant comes after destroying wickedness by the worldwide flood. Its beneficiary is Noah and his descendants and every living thing on the earth. <clears throat> the purpose of this covenant is to preserve a stability of nature that will provide a place for God to enter history. <clears throat> it is unconditional, which means nothing that Noah or his descendants must do to ensure this promise. It is an everlasting covenant, and the sign of this covenant is rainbow. Second is Abrahamic covenant. It is in Genesis 20, 12 to 17. It is after the Tower of Babel. Its beneficiary is Abraham and his seed, which means Israel. <clears throat> the purpose of this covenant is to promise of land and offspring and blessing. It's unconditional. It is based solely on God's faithfulness, not humans. It is everlasting covenant, and sign of this covenant is circumcision. Third is Mosaic covenant. It is in Exodus 19 to 24. It's after the birth of Israel as they left Egypt. Its beneficiary is the nation of Israel. The purpose of uh, this covenant is to teach righteous standards and to protect the nation of Israel. This covenant would serve to set the nation of Israel apart from all other nations as God's chosen people. It is, it is conditional covenant based on humans' obedience to God's commands. So if you are obedient, you will be blessed. If you are not, then you will be cursed. This covenant includes ten commandments. It is significant because it is here that Israel received the Mosaic law that was pointing the way toward the coming of Christ. So what that means is that the Mosaic law they have will reveal to people their sinfulness, and their need for a savior. And it is the Mosaic law that Christ comes to fulfill. 
It is temporally covenant. It is replaced by the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The sign of this covenant is Sabbath. Keeping Sabbath is the way to keep that God makes them holy. Fourth one is Davidic covenant. So let's look at verses 10 to 16. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all my enemies, all your enemies, and your Lord, the Lord declared to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, wielded by man, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. So, David here didn't even use the term covenant in this passage, but in 2 Samuel 23, 5, David said, If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. Again, verse Chronicles 17 and Psalm 89 reiterate this. So David's covenant built upon Abraham's. So because it speaks about the nation, the land, and the Messiah. So uh, first of all, we have to clarify the word house in this chapter. The chapter 7 used the word house seven times, but with three different meanings based upon the context where the word house is used. First, it means palace. When the passage speak of the home of David. Second, it means temple. When speaking of the house that David wants to build for God. Third, it means dynasty. When David speak of the house, that God will build for David. So don't get the meaning confused. So in verses 9b to 16, nine promises were made to David, his offspring, and Israel. First, promise of prominency. I will make your name great, in verse 9b. It is promised grace for David. A promise of residency. I will provide a place in verse 10. It is promised 
to Israel. A promise of security. I will plan them to no longer be disturbed. In verse 10, the people of God will stay under the reign of David. Promise of serenity. I will give you rest. In verse 11, David will enjoy peace with enemies. A promise of posterity. I will establish a house for you and raise up your offspring to succeed you. In verses 11 to 12, God will not permit David to build a temple for God, but insist on building a dynasty for David. So after David's death, David's physical descendant for David's line would always be the royal line. So even death does not end God's promise. A promise of authority. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. In verse 13, David's royal authority is to be established. A promise of paternity. I will be his father. In verse 14, having sonship with God means that David's offspring <coughs> is the son of God or possesses the characteristic of the son of God. So this intimate father-son relationship with God should be demonstrated by mutual love, fidelity, and active obedience. We have the privilege of calling God as our Father, so this is not a big deal for us. But to the Israelite, it would have been unbelievable. Because nowhere else in the Old Testament is an individual so clearly designated a son of God. The father-to-son relationship between God and David's offspring will break out in the New Testament so that we will be called children of God and heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And eighth, a promise of loyalty. My love will never be taken away from him. In verses 14 to 15. Even though God will, God will discipline them, his love and mercy will never depart from them. So even sin cannot destroy God's promise. A promise of permanency. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, in verse 16. So even time will not wear out God's promise. So the near-term fulfillment is speaking of the dynasty of David and his descendants, who sat on the throne for more than uh, four centuries. But the person who knows history might um, notice that after 586 BC, Israel no longer had a king from the line of David. So, how can the dynasty of David endure forever? A succession of imperfect kings could never fulfill the promise. So if God were true to his word, he would have to raise up a righteous, obedient son of God, son of David, to take the throne. So certainty of this covenant 
with David lies ultimately in the fact that God himself will come as king and sit upon the throne, which means Jesus. In Luke 1, uh, chapter 1, 31 to 33, the angel said to Mary, You will conceive and give a birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So, Jesus came. Then what happened? The kingdom was not established due to the people refusing messianic rule by killing Jesus. But God's covenant with David did not cease to exist. Peter, in Acts, cites this chapter on the day of Pentecost to prove the resurrection. Because if David's line is going to last forever, Jesus had to rise. He can be dead. So this is why this chapter is perhaps the most important chapter in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus that from the line of David. Let's look at um, Acts 2.20-36. This is what Peter said. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God has promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, seeing what was to come. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witness of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So the long-term fulfillment of this covenant is speaking of Jesus Christ who will come again a second time, sit on the throne of David, and rule and reign for eternity. <coughs> Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah all prophesied about this. So Jeremiah emphasized that the coming king will fulfill the condition of righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, 5-6, the days are coming declare the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. 
But Isaiah saw the glory of the Son of David more clearly than anyone else. In Isaiah 9, 6-7, For to us child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Okay, to sum this up, the Davidic covenant is after the reign of David. Its beneficiary is King David and his royal seat. The purpose of this covenant is to secure a son of David as a sovereign to sit on a throne and reign forever. Which means that the promise of eternal kingdom is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is of David's kingly lineage. It is an unconditional covenant based upon God's grace, not based on David's earning. It is an everlasting covenant. The sign of this covenant is Christ's resurrection and enthronement. The fifth covenant is new covenant. It is in Jeremiah 31. It is at the time of the Babylonian exile. Its beneficiary is for nationally, it is Israel, but for spiritually, it is all believers now. The purpose of this covenant is to replace an old covenant to secure salvation and redeem God's people from their sin and write his law on their heart and give forgiveness for all of God's people. So under the old covenant, the law was written on tablet of stone. But under the new covenant, the law will be written on hearts of God's people. So under the old covenant, the people have to be continually instructed to do the law and to remember the law. But under the new covenant, they will know God firsthand because the law is inscribed on their heart. Under the old covenant, provisions were made for the forgiveness of sin by means of the various sacrifices. But under the new covenant, God will not only forgive their inequity, but also remember their sin no more. So it is unconditional covenant based on God's grace, not human. It is an everlasting covenant. The sign of this covenant is based is a bread and cup. For those uh, facing 70 years of Babylonian exile, it is a source of great hope for the future of Israel. In the Christian tradition, this Jeremiah's uh, new covenant become the basis for the naming the second part of our Bible as the New Testament or New Covenant. So this promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ as it is through him we receive forgiveness of our sin, 
and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who enable us to seek after the things of God. So, what is David's response to all these God's promises? He didn't say, why don't you let me do whatever I want to do for you? No. In verse 18 it said, King David went in and sat before the Lord. This may be the single most crucial act that David did. Just sit. Sit and think and meditate and become aware of God's word. In doing so, he got himself out of the driver's seat and deliberately placed himself before God. Then he said, who am I? Who am I to be so blessed by God? He expressed his humility as he reflected on God's goodness. He acknowledged that he is unworthy of such a blessing. In this short prayer, verses 20, uh, 18 to 29, David called God sovereign Lord eight times and calling, called himself a servant ten times. David is the highest authority in the land but in relation to God, he is merely a servant of God. He also expresses gratitude to God for what God has promised for him and his house. David understood the source of the blessing in his life. God's blessing was based on God's own nature, not on David's goodness or merit. Our faith strengthened is hold of its blessing by looking back and remembering God's grace in the past. That is what exactly David did in verses 20 to 24. He remembers and praises what this great God has done for his own people. Then he recognized Israel is unique because she is a redeemed people. David cannot look at the sheep without praising the shepherd. So God has done great things for David, but these were not done for David. God worked in David and through David to bring about the fulfillment of his promises to the nation of Israel. At last, David's prayer moves from praise to petition. He asks for future fulfillment of God's promises. So, in conclusion, there are two key points we can get out of this chapter. First, God's plans are bigger than ours. David's plan is just to build a house for God. But God's plan is to build his dynastic line forever. So don't make your God too small. Second, we are in this covenant relationship with God too. As follower of Christ, the perfect descendant of David, we have been adopted into family of God as his children. So through this relationship, the Davidic covenant is extended to us. So enjoy it. Thank you.